Hey there, it's May 22nd, and this is the Sunday edition of CNN Five Things. I'm David Rhine. I want you to imagine what it's like to have someone you love locked up in a foreign country. You can't see them. You get next to no info about their condition. Maybe a short phone call once in a while, but that's it. Just imagine what kind of toll that would take on your mental and physical health. Yeah, and, and Paula, how are you doing with all of this? I can't, I can't imagine you, you've had a, a, any sleep in two years. Yes, basically I do have a lot of sleepless nights and so certain days I'm hardly able to function because of sleep deprivation. For nearly three years, that was the reality for Paula Reed and her husband Joey while their son Trevor was held in a Russian prison. Well, on April 27th, the Reed family finally got to take a breath. Release. Paula, I've never seen you smile before. It's so good to see you smiling. It was good to hear you laughing uh, before we started taping. Um, After months of pleading with the Biden administration, Trevor Reed was freed as part of a prisoner swap and made his way back to the U.S. But since he's been back on American soil, he has not granted a single interview until now. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Um... I feel better every day that I'm here. Uh, Let's spend five minutes with Jake Tapper. He is the host of The Lead with Jake Tapper and CNN's chief Washington correspondent. He landed this exclusive interview with Trevor. So Jake, my first question, and I imagine it was yours as well to Trevor, how is he doing? He's doing okay. He's doing okay. You know, he. Um, there are two components to that question, of course. There's how's he doing psychologically and how's he doing physically. Uh, physically, you know he's not a he's not a tall guy, um, and he lost forty five pounds while in Russian jails and work camps. Forty five pounds. So when he came back, I saw a picture of him. He looked emaciated and unhealthy, and he he's regaining his strength. Um, psychologically, he seems good, but you know these things take a long time. Uh, he was unjustly imprisoned. And he was subjected to some of the worst conditions known to man. Yeah, so what, was the, what was the worst conditions that you, that you had, that you experienced during that time? Well, at that place, the psychiatric treatment facility, I was in there with seven other prisoners in a cell. They all had severe, serious psychological health issues. Um, most of them, so over 50% of them in that cell were in there for murder, were like multiple murders, sexual assault and murder. They put him in a Russian psychiatric criminal hospital ward as a punishment of sorts, not to mention, of course, a Russian work camp. I mean, I did not sleep there for a couple of days. So I was too too worried about, you know, who was in the cell with me to actually sleep. Um, you thought they might kill you? Yeah, I thought that was a possibility. So, you know, I, I think he's healing. I mean, he seemed as well, if not better, than can be expected for somebody three weeks after ending a three-year, almost three-year ordeal. And what was the story he told you of how he ended up unjustly imprisoned, as you say, in Russia? He um, was out drinking with his girlfriend. I don't know if you or our listeners have ever had Russian vodka. (laughs) Can't say I have. But uh, I have in Russia, and I've had Ukrainian vodka, and I'll tell you that it is different than what we have in this country. (laughs) It tastes like water and hits you like anesthesia. 
Like it just knocks you out. And um, so in his memory of that evening, he went out drinking with his girlfriend. And then the next thing he knew, he woke woke up uh, in the lobby of a police station. Now, what he subsequently was told by his girlfriend is that he was in a car and he was uh, with some friends and with his girlfriend and, and uh, he told them to stop because he was going to get sick. And uh, they brought him to the police station to kind of dry out and sober up. And that would have been the end of it, except while he was waiting for his girlfriend to come back and, and pick him up, there was a shift change at the police station. And somebody, the new that person at the desk or commander or whatever heard his English, heard him talking in English and thought, oh, this is interesting. And they called the FSB, which is the successor organization to the KGB. Hmm. And then that's where his troubles began. Right. And so when he's in detention in these horrible, horrible conditions, like you said, you know, how did he get through that? Like he went on a hunger strike at some point, but how did he keep his mind sharp enough to, you know, persevere and get through these grueling days? I mean, I think, first of all, he's a remarkable guy. He's a strong guy and um, a very determined young man with a, with a real sense of right and wrong. And he felt like he had been wronged and he was not going to back down. He was defiant, hmm. defiant to the court that convicted him, defiant to the guards and the wardens. Uh, second of all, I, you know, he's he's a funny guy. He has a dark sense of humor. He's sardonic. And um, I, I think that having a sense of humor about how insane this all was helped him. Did you have confidence you were going to get out? No, I didn't. And a lot of people are not going to like what I'm going to say about this. But I kind of viewed their um, having hope as being a weakness. He says that one of the reasons he was able to make it through was that he never allowed himself to hope. He never allowed himself to feel optimism that he was going to get out because he thought that that would, that would hurt him uh, ultimately because he would be disappointed. You denied yourself hope. Yeah, I you denied myself yourself. that I wouldn't let myself hope. So it wasn't until he was on the plane, the U.S. plane, taking off from Turkey to take him back to the United States, that he felt like he could finally exhale. One of them looks at me and he goes, are you sure America wants you back? (laughs) And I said, what's what's going on? uh, He tells actually a very amusing story. He does the accents and everything uh, about the prisoner swap. He figured out that they were flying to Turkey, process of elimination, looking out the window and then realizing Turkey was the only country that was accepting Russian planes in Europe at that point because the Ukraine war had started and everybody had banned Russian aircraft from their airspace. And then he he lands and uh, one of the guards says something about, you know, pretty cool, huh? You know, and just uh, because that was right next to the other plane and they were about to do a prisoner swap just like in a movie. (laughs) Like in the movies. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I actually want to ask about the prisoner swap part of this because There are some who say, you know, we shouldn't be releasing prisoners back to our adversaries, even if that means bringing an American home. How does the Reed family respond to that idea? Their argument, I said, well, what about, because we did talk about this, um, well, what about the, you know, people who are opposed to this say it incentivizes countries like Russia, China, North Korea, Venezuela, Cuba, whatever, 
they, they will say, policymakers who object to this, say it incentivizes taking Americans hostage. And Trevor's response was, these countries are going to do that anyway. Can you tell me about some of the other Americans who have not been as lucky as Trevor, who are still detained? Because, I, you know, I was struck by just how, you know, how much him and his family want to mention Paul Whelan, who's still in Russia. Is there any guilt there about him being out and others still being detained? He found out that Paul Whelan was not being freed at the same time when he was on the plane. You know, when they told me that I was leaving... I thought that Paul, you know, was leaving with me. And it was actually in the interview one of the most emotional moments because he felt so bad uh, about Paul Whelan not coming home. He didn't have a choice. There's nothing you could do. Yeah, I realize that, but uh, the fact is that the United States should have got him out and we have to get him out at at any cost. And I should note that he never met Paul Whelan. He never met him. And so he, he, it's really remarkable the sense of obligation he feels. And it's one of the reasons he did the interview um, with me, because he wanted to bring attention to uh, the Whelan family and Brittany Griner and the dozens of Americans all over the world who are being unjustly imprisoned by foreign governments. And look, I'm not talking about Americans who actually committed criminal acts in other countries and are, you know, facing the consequences of their actions. We're talking about people who have been unfairly detained, unjustly detained. Uh, And one of the reasons they're speaking out is because Trevor Reed and his family uh, want to use their voices to speak on behalf of Paul Whelan Mm. and the others. And so... Finally, what's next for Trevor and for the family? You've gotten to know them. They they shouted you out specifically um, when Trevor was released. I imagine their you know, entire lives have been consumed by this ordeal over the last couple of years. So how, how do they get back to some sense of normalcy? I don't know. And I don't think they know either, to be honest. I mean, I, I they I mean, this has been their this has been their lives for for three years. Yeah, you go through this whole time and you there's nobody else that really understands it except for the other families that are going through it. And so you form this like kind of messed up trauma bond with these other families. And then one day it's just over for you. And it's like, you know, he's got this little sister who's got to be like uh, 28 or 29 and Taylor, who's great young lady. And, you know, this has been her life. And now there's this hole where this, you know, panic and anxiety used to be. So, um, I mean, it's a good kind of problem to have relative to what she was experiencing before, but all of them are going to have to figure it out. All of us that go six, all, all these people that have been uh, gone, a lot of them, most of them, longer than Trevor. Trevor yes. So I think one of the ways they want to figure it out is for the parents and for Trevor is to advocate on behalf of the Paul Whelans of the world and the Brittany Griners of the world. And, and the other way is they're just going to have to figure out how to not be unhappy right. anymore, which is, again, is, is a good thing, but yet easier said than done. Sure. Well, so much more of your interview with Trevor tonight on CNN at 8 Eastern. The special is called Finally Home. Jake Tapper, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Here's something else happening this week. We're watching to see if the nationwide baby formula shortage eases a bit. The Biden administration says it's going to be flying in stock from overseas this week and is invoking the Defense Production Act to move along manufacturing. However, and sorry, parents, there is a however, officials stress that store shelves won't be fully stocked right away, and it could be a matter of weeks before things are back to normal. The Sunday edition of CNN Five Things is produced by Paolo Ortiz and me, David Rind. Our production manager is Matt Dempsey. Our senior producer is Mohammed Darwish. Our supervising producer is Greg Peppers. And the executive producer of CNN Audio is Megan Marcus. Special thanks this week to Angelica Grimaldi and Federico Quadrani. Have a nice week. I'll talk to you later. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com briefing, netsuite.com briefing.